Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. back in Revelation 16. The last few weeks we have been talking pretty extensively about the wrath of God, and we are going to be talking about the wrath of God again this morning as we see the last of the bowls being poured out on the planet. But I want to emphasize that Paul writes, and we're actually going to read it this morning, that we who belong to Christ, we who are the bride of Christ, we who are the church of Jesus Christ, we are not appointed to wrath. 
That is not the destination that God has assigned for us. So even as you're hearing these passages about the wrath of God, remember how important it is that you're in Christ and that Christ is in you. Because the stuff we're reading now is the stuff that is absolutely going to happen here on planet Earth, and you don't want to be any part of it. And the only escape from it cannot be you, because you are your own worst problem, so you cannot be your solution. The escape from getting out from under the wrath of God can only be Jesus Christ. And so you must be found in him and him in you in order to escape these things. But if you are in him, thank God, you are not predestined, appointed, designated to the wrath of God. So then I had somebody ask me this week, well then, since you don't believe that the church is going to be here for the actual wrath of God... Why are you spending so much time reading it and studying it in your church? Because after all, the church isn't going to be here for it. So why are you studying it? The answer is, I wasn't on Noah's Ark either. But we studied it. There was a whole lot of the Bible that I wasn't participating in. I wasn't standing at Mount Sinai, but we studied the law. Same thing here. We need to know, as Steve said earlier, that God is sovereign over everything, including bugs and animals and donkeys. And because he's sovereign over everything, he has told us his own sovereignty over this planet and how it's all going to wrap up. And the reason we are reading it and studying it is because it ends in the return of Christ to establish his kingdom, which is the culmination of pretty much every prophet in the Old Testament. So actually studying the things that are leading up to the return of God, the regathering of Israel, the return of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom is a very, very Christian thing to be studying because after all, we're studying the Bible and it's in the Bible. Does that make sense? Yes. Chapter 16. I'm going to start reading at verse 1 just so that we can build up speed for the new stuff. And I heard a sound of a voice from the temple saying, to the seven angels, these are the seven angels who have the bowls of the wrath of God. That wrath of God, according to chapter 15, verse 1, is the final finishing, the final culmination, the final wrapping up of God pouring out his wrath on the planet. So the seven angels are spoken to from God who is in his temple by himself. And he says, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who was, O holy one, Because thou didst judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. 
And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings of the east. And that's where we ended last week. So verse 13 is now picking up with the last of the bowls to be poured out. The sixth angel has poured out his bowl in the same way that previously in the book of Revelation we have seen that during the series of like the trumpets there was a break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. That's what's happening starting at verse 13. We've seen the six bowls poured out and now there's a little break in the action before the seventh bowl is poured out starting at verse 17. It's a brief little section here, but it's a really important section because it's going to introduce us to perhaps one of the best known concepts in all of the Bible. I don't care who you talk to, whether they're Christian, whether they read their Bible, they know the word Armageddon. Whenever there is a major conflagration on the planet, a big war somewhere, it ends up being described as Armageddon. There are movies called Armageddon. Everybody seems to know the word Armageddon. Very few people know why, where it came from, or what the importance of it is. Starting in verse 13. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan, Satan himself. I saw coming out of the mouth of Satan and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's all three members of the false trinity, the anti-Christian, anti-God trinity. All three of them have unclean spirits coming out of their mouth. Now, John says, like frogs. I wish he had extrapolated a little bit at that point, because I want to know in what way are they like frogs, but they seem to have a similarity in appearance where John was able to just say, well, they were like frogs. But then he's going to describe to us what their point, what their purpose is, because he says they are spirits of demons. So don't get too hung up on the whole frog thing. The point is, out of the mouth of Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, there are three Spirits of demons performing signs, doing wonders, doing miraculous things on the planet. And they are then going to go and gather the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty One. Notice again how often John refers to the God of Revelation as the Almighty. Not only is he demonstrating it through the things that God is doing, because it's obvious that as God is pouring out his wrath, as God is accomplishing these things, it's clear that nobody on earth can withstand him. Nobody can tell him to stop it. Nobody can withstand his hand. Nobody can say to him, what are you doing? Because he is the Almighty. And so that keeps being emphasized over and over again as we continue through the book of Revelation. That the God that people on earth are dealing with is the one who has all the power, all the might. And every time I read the name, the Almighty, I can't help but ask, so how much power does that leave over for you? And that would be none, because he is the all-powerful. He is the almighty. And that is why he is definitely going to do these things, and has the power to do these things, has the ability to do these things, has all the might so he can do these things. And even though it's going to be terrifically unpleasant for the people of planet Earth, nobody on planet Earth gets to stop him. 
because they don't have the power. Years ago, Tom and I had a conversation, and it's been years, and so we ought to have another one, I think. And (laughs) Years ago, Tom commented, you know, it's one thing for God to make up rules. He said, I make up rules. You know, anybody who has kids make up rules. He said, but the difference between God's rules and our rules is that he actually has the power behind his rules to actually implement those rules. He is the sovereign one. Therefore, he can say and do anything he wants to say and anything he wants to do because he is the all-powerful one. We who are parents know that sometimes we lay out rules that our children may or may not follow. And we think we have the power until they're out of our sight. Well, nobody's ever out of God's sight. He has all the power, all the authority, and it is that basis, it is that sovereignty that gives him the authority to then say what all of human history is going to look like, how it's going to play out, in what order it's going to play out, who is going to be delivered from it, who is going to undergo it, that he is going to scatter his people Israel, that he is going to regather his people Israel. He can say all that in advance because he has the power to actually implement it, which is why he keeps referring to himself as the Almighty. So don't just read past that word. He's telling you something very important about the God that we worship. He is the one who has the power and the authority and the sovereignty and the might to do whatever he wants to do. And that's why David could say, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He sits on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. And that is why he is pouring out his wrath against his enemies on the planet. And so there is this war coming, this cataclysmic war coming, and Satan and the false prophet and the beast himself each individually send out an unclean spirit, the spirit of demons that are so powerful they're going to be performing signs And then those demons are going to go out to all the kings of the whole world in order to gather them together for the war. And even though, this is just fascinating to me, talk about sovereignty. This is why I'm building up to this. God is causing Satan and the beast and the false prophet to send out demonic spirits to the whole world to gather them to the war that belongs to God. So even though Satan is doing what he wants to do, even though the false prophet's doing what he wants to do, even though the beast is doing what he wants to do, ultimately they end up doing exactly what God said they're going to do. Because they are going to gather at Armageddon. Because there is going to be a final conflict. And why? Because God's in charge. God's in charge of the righteous stuff that happens on the planet God is in charge of even demonic activity that happens on the planet. That, by the way, is not unique to the book of Revelation. That's something that we see over and over again. When Jesus was on the planet and he came across the demoniac of the Gadarenes, when he appeared, the demons inside the demon-possessed man said, O Son of God, what have you to do with us? Are you going to cast us into the abyss before our time? They knew who he was, and they were surprised to see him on planet Earth. And they also knew that he was the one that was going to judge them. And even when they wanted to take pigs, they still had to ask him for permission. God is sovereign under every aspect and any aspect of human life that you can find, and he is also sovereign over demons. Remember that the devil himself is a created being and that ultimately, as we're going to see later in the book of Revelation, he's going to end up in the lake of fire. So why, when Satan fell, why, when Satan got raised up in his ego and said, I'll put my throne in the place of the north, I'll be like God, why didn't God instantly say, nope, not having it? 
put him in the lake of fire, cast him away forever. Because he's going to do it. He can do it. He always could do it. Why hasn't he done it yet? It's because Satan serves God's purpose. And here again we see it. Because Satan himself and the false prophet and the beast are all going to call the kings of the earth to the war of God. Pretty significant. It goes by the nickname of Armageddon simply because of where it's happening. The Har or the mountain of Megiddo on the Megiddo plain, the Har Megiddo is the place where they're going to gather for that war. And people have been gathering for wars there ever since. I mean, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, 1918 was the last war that took place in that very valley by that very mountain. It is a place that is known for warfare on the planet. And God is gathering the kings of the whole world there. By the way, usually when you see the word, usually when you see the word world, that was harder to say than I expected. Usually when you see the word world in the Bible, you think it's the Greek word cosmos, which John does use repeatedly in a variety of different ways. But this particular time, it's oikomene, which means the known inhabited world, the terrestrial part of planet Earth that actually has inhabitants in it. So it's not talking about the planet so much. It's talking about the people who are living on the planet, the residents of the planet, who are going to be called to this final conflict that God is completely sovereign over. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then verse 15 says, and if you've got an NASB, you'll see that they actually put it in parenthesis. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they, the demons, shall gather them, the kings of the earth, together to the place which in the Hebrew is called har Mageddon. So the word Armageddon actually is just a geographic term that identifies the place where this war is going to happen. We have given it the connotation of being a cataclysmic war simply because we know that this final war is going to take place there. So Armageddon is the common word. I want to talk for a little while about verse 15. The parenthetical verse that says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments. It is very, very appropriate at this moment in time as God is pouring out his wrath, as we're right in the midst of day of the Lord language. It's very appropriate that this comment, thief in the night, would be brought up again because that phrase is used repeatedly in the Bible and every single time that it's used, it is always in connection with the day of the Lord. It is always in connection with God pouring out his wrath. 1972, I was a junior in high school, that's why I remember the date. There was a movie that came out called The Thief in the Night. And they made it all about the rapture. Bible never says that thief in the night is connected to the rapture. They just kind of did that. When I moved to California, I spent a certain amount of time dealing with musicians who were Baha'is. I worked out of a studio of Baha'i people. I don't know how much you know about the Baha'i faith, but because the Bahu'u'llah came to Persia and then was put in prison for most of his life, there is a book about the Bahu'u'llah called A Thief in the Night. Of course, biblically, Thief in the Night has nothing to do with Bahu'u'llah. 
but people like the phrase. It's a very poetic sounding phrase. Something's going to happen like a thief in the night. Well, if we look at the Bible, not only does it connect it constantly with the day of the Lord, but it also defines what the thief in the night phraseology means. So let's take the time this morning to look at a few phrases about the thief in the night. I'm going to start in 2 Peter 3, for those of you who want to read along. Know this first of all. Oh, good. I like that Peter told us, okay, this first. Here's the first thing you need to know. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter tells us that that's going to happen through these last days. People are going to mock the idea of Christianity. They're going to mock the idea of Christ's return. And they're going to say, nothing's ever changed. It's been 2,000 years. He's still not here. And so they're going to mock us for believing that Christ is going to return, that Christ is going to set up his kingdom. Would anybody like to testify that that's true? I mean, it's been true over the last 2,000 years, but this anti-Christian mockery seems to be growing in its fervency these days. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. For when they say this, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Okay, so Peter's argument is, if anybody's mocking the idea of Christ's return, they have forgotten the history of God. They have forgotten that the beginning of the book of Genesis says that God made the planet, it was covered with water, and then he brought up land out of it and separated the land from the water, and then he ruined the world by water, coming down out of the clouds and up out of the deeps, Noah Just a family of eight people were saved at that time. And so Peter reaches back to that and says, people who don't think Christ is coming back and think everything remains the same, forget that for a long time on planet Earth, everything appeared just the same. Everything just went along fine. And everybody was fine with that. And then God suddenly poured out judgment. And he's going to do it again. That's Peter's point by saying, By his word, by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire because God put a rainbow in the sky and said that he wasn't going to flood the planet anymore. Instead, he's going to burn it. It's very much like we're reading in Revelation 16 that the sun is scorching the planet. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be discovered. So, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we notice the separation that Peter is making. They are going to suffer under the punishment of God. But we, 
we who are in Christ, we who are his church, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So in Peter's estimation, the reforming of heaven and earth, the judgment of God, results in glorious things for we who belong to Christ. It's wrath and punishment for the people on the planet who take the mark, who worship after the beast. They're going to fall under the wrath of God. We who are in Christ, we look forward to God accomplishing his wrath. That's why the people in heaven are worshiping God as he is pouring out his wrath. And then he ultimately brings about all the glorious things that he has also predicted. Peter says that's all going to happen. That gives it apostolic authority. And if you believe it, you're going to get mocked. So let's make it easy. Have you ever been mocked for your Christianity? Yep. Take heart. That's evidence that the Bible's true. Yep. Make sense? Yep. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 5. Now, as to the periods and the times, brothers, that's the chronos and the kairos, the times and the seasons. Chronos is the Greek word from which we get like chronograph, chronology. It means the sequence of things that are happening in time. And the kairos are the particular moments in time where particular things occur. Paul obviously taught a lot of eschatology while he was in Thessalonica because he says to them in his letter, now as to those periods and times, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Again, I wish he had extrapolated. But because he had already taught this to the Thessalonians, he could just say, you don't need me to tell you all about it. You already know. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is coming just like a thief in the night. So there's that thief in the night language again. Peter used it. Paul uses it. It's a common phrase, and it's always in connection with the day of the Lord. Now Paul is going to define for us what he means by saying that the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. Here's what it's going to look like. He's going to divide all of humanity again into two people groups. He's going to call them they and we. So pay attention to the pronouns. While they are saying peace and safety, while they think that everything's fine, while they think the world is going to be okay through their own power, through their own ability to make deals through their own ability to establish their own societies. They're going to think that they are creating peace and safety. And while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Does that sound familiar? How often have we seen this parallel between this time of tribulation and the labor pains? Paul picks up that same language. Sudden destruction is going to come on them and cause them such tremendous pain. He likens it to labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Verse 4 uses the opposing pronoun and says, but you. And then Paul uses the word brethren. So he's clearly talking to Christians now. After saying they are going to undergo sudden destruction, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that the day of the Lord will overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let's not sleep as others do, but let's be alert. Let's be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night. Those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Those are very encouraging words. When you're reading about the wrath of God, when you're understanding that God is perfectly willing to pour out his sovereign, almighty wrath on human beings, that can sound very frightening. It's really good to know that God has not destined us, we who are in Christ. We are not destined to the wrath of God. They, on the other hand, they are. And they are going to feel fully sufficient. They're going to think they're doing just fine. And they're going to be walking around bragging about peace and safety. And in the midst of their feeling peaceful and safe, God is going to pour out sudden destruction on them. And they will not escape. Did Jesus ever use the phrase thief in the night? Well, yeah, he did in Matthew 24. I'm going to start reading at verse 42. This is going to sound very similar to what we just read out of Revelation. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert. That means stay awake. Pay attention. Read the times. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready as well, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So Jesus also likened his return in judgment to a thief coming in the night and the world is not going to be prepared for it they're not going to be ready for it they're not going to be expecting it and yet sudden destruction is going to fall on them and not on the collective us am I the only one who's excited about this (laughs) I mean the wrath of God is coming it's unavoidable the wrath of God is coming Look, if you knew that later tonight, let's say you had to visit the ER, let's say you knew that there was sudden pain coming your way tonight, and somebody told you a way out of it, wouldn't you take it? And that's just a little physical pain in the night. You'd be all over it. Yeah, how do I avoid that pain? What pill do I got to take? What potion do I have to drink? Let's avoid the pain. Now, this is the wrath of God coming, and the only escape from the wrath of God is Jesus Christ, and men won't take it. Men won't run to Christ. There's depravity. Luke 17. This is also Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, Luke 17, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the day will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not leave and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out in one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, and they were drinking, and they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage. In other words, they were doing the normal stuff that people do every single day. And in the days of Noah, according to Jesus, it was exactly that way. People got up the morning that the rain was going to start, and they got up planning their day. And they got up making plans, and marrying, and giving in marriage. And then 
the flood came and killed them all. And they didn't know it the day they woke up. They didn't know that that was about to happen. And so Jesus likens that event to his own return. In verse 28, he likens it to Lot being taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the same in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. By the way, let me just add this parenthetically. Jesus just validated and gave credibility to the Noah story and the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And I figure he would know. The Son of God would know whether or not that was just mythology. And he talks about it as though it is a valid historic event that actually occurred and is using it as an example for what is coming. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and it destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who will be on the housetop with his goods in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned back. That didn't go well for her. I tell you, on that night, there will be Two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place, and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. Now, many people read those particular verses, and in fact, those verses have been imported into like the Left Behind books and movies and everything else as a demonstration of the rapture. Uh, that is not a rapture passage. It has nothing at all to do with the rapture. I'm going to prove that to you by reading the next verse. That seems obvious. You ought to be able to pay attention to the context. Because once Jesus described two women grinding, one taking the other left, two men in a field, one taking the other left, the apostles ask him the question, where? And he does not say, oh, one is taken up to heaven and the other is left behind. That's not the answer he gives them. Instead, what he says is, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. That doesn't sound very rapture-y. What we're going to see as we continue through Revelation and continue comparing it to what Jesus is saying, he's saying these are the people who are responding to the demon spirits and they are being called to the war of God where there is going to be a major destruction of all those people, and that is called in the book of Revelation the feast of God given to the birds, given to the vultures, given to the carrion birds, so that they can come and eat the flesh of kings and of captains and of men. That's where they're being called to, and they're not being called to heaven by God, they're being called to Armageddon by demon spirits. And so that's why within the context of the destruction that is going to accompany the day of the Lord, Jesus couches it within the language of thief in the night. And then he gives you examples of thief in the night. It's going to be like with Noah and the ark. People got up not knowing that everybody was going to die that day, and then sudden destruction. It's going to be like Lot, the day that Lot left Sodom. That was the day that fire came down from heaven and destroyed them all. They didn't know that the day they woke up. They were still being their evil selves. They got up doing what they wanted to do and engaging in every kind of evil, thinking, where's God in all this? I can do whatever I want to do. There's no judgment. Nothing's going to happen to me. And that's why we started with Peter, who says, when people say, where is the return where is the coming of Christ? Where is this judgment? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's just going along the exact same way. Peter says, remember how it was. Because people were on the planet just buying and selling and trading and marrying and giving in marriage and thinking it was just another day and there was sudden destruction. And that's how it's going to be when the Son of Man returns. 
when there is this war of God, when this final battle occurs and all the kings of the earth and all the armies of the earth are gathered for the destruction that God is pouring out. They're not going to expect it. They're not going to get up that morning going, you know, gee, I wonder if God's going to kill us all today. They're going to get up thinking it's just another day and then sudden destruction. I'm nearly done, Jeff. (laughs) But give me a little leeway. Hey, come on, Earth Day and all that. Come on, a little leeway. So we're back in the book of Revelation. What I hope you saw by reading the verses that we have so far is to say that the thief in the night concept, especially in the New Testament, is always connected to the day of the Lord. It is never connected to the rapture or the catching away of the church. The language just simply isn't in there. The language of thief in the night is always the destruction that God has planned as part of his wrath that we know as the day of the Lord. And now we're back in Revelation 16. Verse 14. There were spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them to the war of the great day of God the Almighty. That's not new information. If you know your Old Testament, all that is is a confirmation of what Zechariah has already predicted. And you thought you were done flipping. We're going to Zechariah 14 now in the Old Testament. Find the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 14, we're going to start reading at verse 1. And it's going to describe the same event that we just saw in Revelation 16. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh. Gee, that would be the day of the Lord, wouldn't it? Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil that is taken away from Israel will be divided again among Israel. The reason that I inserted the word Israel in that sentence for my critics online is because it says you, but if you go back and you read the end of Zechariah 13, he's addressing Israel directly. And so the promise from God is there is a day coming when the spoil that other kings, other nations have taken from you, that's all going to be returned to you and divided among you. Verse 2, look at it. Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to the battle. I mentioned earlier that the Armageddon is there in the Middle East. You can go look it up today. You can go find it. The city of Megiddo is still there. And there's a plain that's known as Esdralon. You'll find it southeast of present-day Haifa in the northwestern area of Palestine. It's known as the North District of Israel these days. And it has this sort of commanding location where you can get on this hill and see the valley below it. So having control of that hill is very important militarily. That hill of Megiddo is where that name, Armageddon, is derived from. I mentioned earlier that in 1918 was the most recent battle there. That was when the Turkish forces were actually conquered or defeated by the British under General Allenby. If you grew up studying English history, British history, you know that battle. So Armageddon is still a locatable place near Megiddo here on planet Earth. And at some point, according to Zechariah and according to Revelation, God is going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem, which puts them right at the Har Megiddo. And he's going to gather them for the battle. And it's going to go bad at first. God started by declaring the things that have been taken from you are going to be returned to you. That's to give them reassurance for what comes next. Because God also tells them 
that the battle there near Jerusalem is going to go bad for them. The city will be captured and houses will be plundered. The women ravished and half of the city will go forth into exile. And those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. But then, I like the word then, but then, okay, I have to say something else parenthetically. I began by waxing poetic about the sovereignty of God. The reason that I extrapolated about the sovereignty of God and emphasized that you can't be the cure for you because you are your problem, that's the same with Israel. And so if they are going to ever get the blessings that God has promised them, if they're ever going to get the kingdom again, if they're ever going to get the stuff that the foreign nations have stolen from them, if they're ever going to be returned, they're not going to be the ones who do it. Instead, what's going to happen to them when their enemies all come down on them is that their city is going to be captured and the houses plundered and the women ravaged and their city is going to go forth, half of it, into exile. That's all going to happen. But... Then the solution to Israel's problem is the same as the solution to our problem because the next words are, then Yahweh will go forth and fight. If you have God fighting for you, you win because God just doesn't lose. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where's the Mount of Olives? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in fact, the text says so, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Really interesting. Jesus, we know the Olivet Discourse because he taught it on the Mount of Olives. We know that Jesus several times got away from everybody would go to the Mount of Olives. But when Jesus left, after cleansing the temple, he went east of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. In the Old Testament, when God abandoned the temple, we read that he went east, out the east gate. And then we read specifically to the Mount of Olives and then up from there. He's coming back from heaven to the Mount of Olives through the East Gate back to Jerusalem. Same way he left. And he's coming back to fight. And Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on the day of battle. And his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move to the south. That sounds very much like an earthquake sort of event. By the way, this is the same Jesus who said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move. How many of you have moved a mountain lately? How many of you have ever told a mountain to go plant itself in the sea and it actually did it? That'd be none of you. When Christ returns, mountains move. Back to Revelation. Chapter 16, verse 16. The kings of the earth are gathered together to a place which in the Hebrew is called the Har-Mageddon. That puts them right outside Jerusalem. By the Mount of Olives, where Christ is going to return with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, and he's going to fight like a man of war on the day of battle. And the seventh angel, finally, see the parenthesis? Now we're finally to the seventh bowl. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, and said, it is done. Because back in chapter 15, verse 1, we did read that there was another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last of the plagues. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. 
At this point, the seventh bowl is poured into the air, and from heaven, the statement from the temple of God, it is done. And there were flashes and lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake. What a surprise, an earthquake event, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Well, yeah, Christ himself is returning, and the planet is splitting under his feet. That's power. That's authority. That's dominion. That's sovereignty. And the great city. Tom, if you would, real quickly, look up Revelation 11.8. Just go back a couple of chapters. Because it just says great city here was split into three parts. We read in Zechariah that the city was going to be captured and that half the city was going to go into exile and that the people who were left in the city would not be cut off from the city. Here we hear that the great city is going to be divided into three parts just to identify the great city. What does Revelation 11:8 say, Tom? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem. So the great city in the book of Revelation is a reference to Jerusalem. If you're reading the Left Behind books, they'll tell you that that's Rome, or that it's Rome under the guise of Babylon. But if you just pay attention to the context, remember John did not write chapters And five of what we would call chapters ago, he identified Jerusalem as the great city. Now that he has identified it, he can just refer to it as the great city. Is there any confusion here? I don't know why people confuse the obvious things. The great city was split into three parts. Well, yeah, with that kind of earthquake. And the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men immediately turned to Christ, made a decision, and were saved in that moment. No. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, Because its plague was extremely severe. With the phrase, Babylon the Great was remembered before God, that's an introduction to what's coming up now in the book of Revelation. The next two chapters are going to talk a lot about Babylon. So if you want to miss the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about Babylon. But if you miss the next couple of weeks, you also miss a baptism, and then you know, that family won't like you anymore. <laughs> so. so we'll be talking about Babylon, about historic Babylon, about spiritual Babylon, about why Babylon looms so large in the Bible in the weeks to come. What I want you to see here today is that the seventh of the bowls is finally poured out, it's done, it's finished, the wrath of God is being poured out, and that wrath of God culminates in Jesus Christ coming back to the planet to defeat his enemies, to set up his kingdom that will never be destroyed, exactly like Daniel told us all the way back in the Old Testament. If you just read the Bible and read the context, it all makes sense. And if you wonder whether that's actually going to happen, is God really going to pour out his wrath, or are you going to join the mockers? Where is his return? If you don't think it's going to happen, the biblical answer to you is, think back. Has it happened before? The answer is yes. Jesus verified it. Jesus validated that it happened before. It happened with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened in Noah's time with the flood. God works this way. This is how God acts. He's done it before. He has said he's going to do it again. If you have any faith in the Bible, you have to say, it's going to happen again. What should you do? Run to Christ! Because it's obviously going to get really bad for the them that are left here on the planet. Be really, really grateful to God when you hit your knees tonight. Thank him that you are not destined to that wrath.
Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Then I'm done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.